0: So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. I'm not thank even you. sure I
1: totally understand exactly what the reasoning is. So it's yeah. it's she does it on her own yeah. with these two guys, thinking she'll get paid a lot of money.
2: Correct. That doesn't.
1: But no, I guess I guess no, I guess that's it. All right. All
0: right. We'll see if it flies. But yeah, that's
1: it. Jesse Weber, thank you. That does it for us tonight. Banfield starts.
0: And welcome to Thursday. You know what that is. Friday Eve, if you're a fan of the show, that's how we start every Thursday. And it was also day two. Not for me, for Caitlin Armstrong. Uh, Day two of her murder trial, which means she is two days closer to finding out if she is going to be a free woman or if she is going to be locked up for life. The question is Did she or didn't she put a gun to the head of a pro cyclist named Mo Wilson, who she thought was sleeping with her boyfriend? That's the question. And I keep wondering if she's going to do a hair toss at any point, because every time I think of this case, I think of the long red hair, and it plays into the case. More on that in a moment. Today, though, the star in that courtroom was not a person, and it wasn't so much a story. It was a bike. Uh, I love bikes. I have always had a bike, but I have never in my life had a bike worth up to $15,000. And the bike that was in that courtroom today was that expensive and it was that important because that bike was thrown into the bamboo bushes and hidden. Whoever killed Mo wanted to make sure her bike wasn't found. And guess what was on that bike? Oh, you're so good at this because you're true crime fans. Yeah. Caitlin's DNA. That's what you call a bad fact. Caitlin's parents were there. They spoke with news nation today. We're going to tell you all about that in a moment. And then I have this story for you. Um, from florida big brothers i have two of them uh they are great right they will do anything for their little sisters like anything which is why i love my big brothers but there is this one big brother in florida um who is accused of hiring a pair of killers to wipe out his little sister's ex so that's a lot to take in that that's a lot and speaking of star witnesses in court he decided to take the stand himself in his own murder trial because prosecutors want to put him away for this It is not usually a good idea to take the stand in your own trial. Ask Alex Murdoch. But it happens, and it is dramatic. And this fella put on a very good show today. There is just so much that he needs to overcome. So many stories. I'm going to lay all of that out for you, tell you the amazing story he told. It's, like, worthy of Hollywood. Okay, and then also, do you ever wish that you could go back in time and correct something that you did? Because it ended up being a big mistake. I am hearing a cacophony of yeses among all of you. And I will echo back, yes. I, I always, always have that feeling. But there is one particular guy in Memphis who really, really wishes he could go back in time. And pick up his trash. Because that fella right there, um, police say he tried to rob a house. And and who wants to tell him that he left behind one of his own arrest warrants? <laughs> Just, boop, accidentally dropped it at the scene of a crime. But the story might just be what that arrest warrant was for and how the heck something like that happens. All of that is coming up uh, in this show, so you better pour a long, stiff drink. I'm going to start in Austin, Texas, and a murder trial that involves escapes, more than one, and a love triangle, and a yoga mat, and a nose job. Caitlin Armstrong is the yoga teacher with the flaming red hair who took off to Costa Rica uh, while she was wanted for the murder of a young woman who had had a fling with her boyfriend. That victim was a rising star in the world of cycling before she was shot dead execution style. And Caitlin Armstrong was seen on surveillance heading for Central America. Caitlin used her sister's passport and her sister's name and she cut off all that red hair and she dyed it brown. And then for good measure, she cut off the nose that she used to have in favor of a brand new one a.k.a. plastic surgery. But the big question for her jury is, did Caitlin kill Mo Wilson before skipping town? And believe it or not, the answer just might come from that. Take a close look. The answer might just come from Mo Wilson's own extraordinarily fancy bike. A very expensive bike, worth about $15,000. It's the one that she used to ride before she was shot twice in the head and once in the heart. Mo and her bike were inseparable in life, so it may just be poetic justice, my friends, that the bike should take center stage in her murder trial. It was found stuffed into a bamboo forest just yards away from the scene where Mo was bleeding out. And wouldn't you know it? The prosecutors say Caitlin Armstrong's DNA was found all over that very expensive bike. Today they brought that bike into the courtroom and they reassembled it and they showed it to the jury. News Nation's national correspondent, Alex Capriello was in the courtroom, even had a chance to speak with Caitlin Armstrong's family today. This was a really busy day for you. So take me to that moment, because I am telling you, Alex, whenever there is show and tell of a dramatic thing that's at the center of a murder case, usually uh, jurors eyes pop wide open and so do the defendants. So tell me about that moment.
1: Yeah, up to this point it was all digital, everything that we were seeing evidence-wise was either a video or a picture, but then all of a sudden I'm looking at the prosecutors and I'm seeing them very quietly put on those blue surgical gloves and my eyes popped because I knew something was about to come out behind a hidden door. Sure enough, uh, Mo Wilson's really expensive, beautiful uh, training bike that she uses, Uh, carried in an evidence bag, was lifted and brought to center stage right there in front of the entire jury to see. And we had about a good hour to two hours with that bike really as the focal point of that witness testimony. Uh, All of the jury members craning their necks to get a good look at it. Uh, That also includes Caitlin Armstrong. She was focused in on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it really went from uh, the DNA analyst showing where on the handlebars and on the bike seat that they were actually extracting both fingerprints and dna to even actually assembling the bike in the position uh... that it closely resembled the pictures that we've seen from that crime scene evidence so that way the jury could actually see how it was laid down in that bamboo forest
0: that would have been hard i would think for her family to see that bike you know knowing that this was her passion and her love and you know there it was um... in in the middle of that courtroom you know the, the big other story that will not leave caitlin armstrong ever is the fact that she has you know been on two sort of manhunts escapes like she she absconded to costa rica and then just a couple weeks ago tried to flee her her guards um when she went for a doctor's appointment so yesterday the big headline was like four to five big burly guards surrounding her uh same thing today different like are they are they letting their guard down with her
1: I would say there's three guards surrounding her at all times. I'm not sure it was the same four or five that brought her in um, the first time we saw her. But nevertheless, yeah, very heavily uh, secured uh, all around her. Still to this day, no handcuffs, no leg restraints or anything like that. She walks in on her own. They're not carrying her in there. But certainly sheriff's deputies are surrounding her. Again, she was in her professional attire, a different pantsuit, a different blouse. uh, But yeah, no restraints.
0: And if our viewers are wondering, uh, we're watching the video where she came in for her first day of trial because the the judge in this case got a little bit persnickety about cameras, and he allowed just this day uh, to be um, seen on camera. And then the cameras go dark uh, until verdict, and I think closings as well. So um, that's a bit of a bummer, but yeah. you're there, so you're our eyes. You also had a chance to talk with Caitlin Armstrong's parents. I'm shocked that they spoke with anybody uh... you know typically it's very hard to get the defendant's family to talk during trial but they spoke with you tell me all about it
1: yeah and we have to be really delicate about it because no one here wants to be here right if it's from the defendant's family or the victim's family it's really tough on everyone and so uh, our news nation team approached them during a brief recess because we wanted to see how they were doing we wanted to ask What's going on through their heads? Uh, They tell us that they came, they flew in from Michigan. They came there to support their daughter. Uh, The parents are divorced at this time, but uh, really it's hard on them. They say they're doing as well as they possibly can be. But beyond that, they're really just not interested in talking to anyone, including myself, probably from this day on. Uh, They just want to keep to themselves. They are going to stay here for as long as the trial lasts. But beyond that, I'm not sure I'm going to have another chance to speak to them.
0: There's also this like incredible dynamic that plays out in courtrooms. And if, if you're watching, if you've never gone to a trial uh, viewer, please just do yourself a favor. Do what Alex is doing. Sit in a courtroom and watch this. Alex, I'm always amazed by the bifurcation right down the center of the courtroom, usually behind the prosecutors, like the family members of the victim uh, will sit, and then behind the, the defense, the family members of the, the defendant will sit. And sometimes it's just like, like you could cut the tension with a knife between the families i'm curious about the dynamics between mo wilson's family members and caitlin armstrong's family members what's it like in there
1: Actually, I'll tell you, there's an army of people that are supporting Mo Wilson and her family. Uh, Beyond just her brother, Matthew, who was the first witness we heard from yesterday, and the mother and the father, there's also the key witness, Caitlin Cash, the woman who actually called 911 and discovered her body. And then just this massive group of friends and cyclists and fellow professionals. One guy I spoke to today flew all the way from Vermont and he was right there holding Caitlin Cash's shoulders during some of the worst moments of witness testimony and video that we watched today. So, yes, there's the prosecutor's table, there's the family right behind him, then there's got to be at least two packed rows of friends who are supporting the Wilsons, then finally comes me and my team and several others. On the defense's side, um, I would say it's really what I've seen is just Caitlin Armstrong's mother and father I believe, although I'm not confirmed, I saw Caitlin's sister yesterday. We did not see her again today. And then it's just news media behind them. So, not nearly the same support for Caitlin Armstrong's team as we're seeing for Mo Wilson and her family.
0: It is a real-life drama that plays out during these trials. It's, uh, it's a remarkable scene to take in. Um, Alex Capriolo, thank you for being the eyes and ears for us. We'll check back in with you with uh, tomorrow's developments. And for now, though, I want to bring in Mark Garagos, who's a criminal defense attorney and the co-host of the Reasonable Doubt podcast with Adam Carolla. Also, one of the smarter people I know in this business and um, just fun to talk to. So, Mark, I wanted to ask you about a big thing that happened in court today. The defense is going to make some hay, of this bike. First of all, I don't know about you, but I just love the moment when they bring show-and-tell items into a courtroom. I just think it just changes the dynamic of, of this, the show. They put on a show, right? But the, the defense is going to suggest that this bike is a big piece of evidence. It wasn't bagged like normally evidence is bagged, because it's too big. And they threw it in the back of a cruiser, and of course that's why there'd be transfer DNA on it. I think that's crazy, but tell me if it's not.
3: Well, I will tell you the one thing that, if you're sitting there in real time and you're the defense, um, the bike is almost a reprieve. I take the opposite because you're the the crime scene photos and the photos of the of this young woman who's been murdered um, are awful, and that always you know kind of grips the jury and incites the jury. So once you've gotten through that, and then you've got the bike. The bike is almost a respite, because then you can start talking about it, taking apart and chipping away at it. And I will tell you, um, that is a tough, that's a heavy lift. But in the opening statement yesterday, Ashley, the defense seems to think that they've got something. I I would not have guessed that they were going to say it, but they did promise in a rather short opening statement that by the time the jury got to the closing that the jury would come to the conclusion that this evidence was not compelling, the forensic evidence. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you also have to wonder, and you mentioned it uh, kind of with your your headline, if you will, was the leaving, leaving the country and trying to escape. You know, I that is one of the things that would trouble me the most. And the only person who can explain why she did that is her. So are they setting up for the fact that she may take the stand that may be her only hope here because she ha- i know you would love that you would <laughs> take a field trip if that <laughs> were the case
0: yep yep you're speaking <clears throat> my language gergos hey i want to mm-hmm. ask you one other thing here and that is that um there's i didn't know about this till today there's a landlord who could be a witness in all of this. It's like almost like a, a, a Cato Calen story. If I get it right, he's smoking a bong in the garage. He hears footsteps running downstairs and a bicycle scooting away. So, with those very you know meager details, uh, what, what do you think can be done with that? Because C- just the notion that there's oh, a bong please. that enters the story uh, kind of just <clears throat> makes me think it's it's just a distraction.
3: Well, I think that's exactly right, because uh, you're going to have so much fun with the Big Bang Bong and the fact that they apparently did not hear the shots and apparently um, uh, didn't understand what was going on and then came back out uh, because he wanted to smoke the bong. For the defense, that's exactly another one of these interludes that you're praying for, because that acts as something or a segue into why is it that they don't have They've got the Jeep, and I will tell you, on a circumstantial evidence case, the fact that you've got DNA and you've got a Jeep that matches the Jeep that she's uh, uh, purported to have used, those are tough facts to get around. In circumstantial evidence cases, people don't understand. I've tried so many of them. In a lot of ways, they're more difficult than direct evidence where you have eyewitness testimony. Because jurors like this idea, like everybody else does. You've got true crime devotees who watch you every night, Ashley, because they like the kind of playing of the facts together, putting them together, doing the sleuthing, if you will. Jurors do the same thing. They take an oath. They want to hear the facts. They want to put it together. They don't want to necessarily um, not come to a conclusion. They want to solve the crime. It's in human nature. So circumstantial cases are tough for the defense. This case is no exception. So they're going to have to deal with some very tough facts.
0: But I usually think that a good circumstantial case is better uh, than a case with direct evidence because, um, you know, jurors are no dummies. And some of that circumstantial stuff is pretty darn convincing. You're going to have to come back because this trial is ongoing and I cannot wait to hear the next day of evidence. Thanks, Mark Garagos. Good to see you.
3: Good to see you, too, Ashley. Bye-bye.
0: Okay, so still to come, who knows if Caitlin Armstrong is going to do a hair toss and head for the stand? I don't know in the coming days. I hope so. I hope what Garrigo said happens. But it is very rare for a murder defendant to actually take the stand. But maybe there's something else in the water in Florida, because that dentist right there, he marched up to the front of the courtroom today and swore to tell the whole truth, that he didn't hire a hitman to kill his little sister's ex. But did he? Did he hire the hitman or did he tell the truth? Wait till you hear the story. It's next. If you are going to get on the witness stand in your own trial, and I'm talking murder trial, like not jaywalking, you had better have a really good story. And does Charlie Adelson have a good story? I'm sorry, that's Dr. Charlie Adelson, South Florida dentist, who prosecutors say arranged to have his sister's ex bumped off back in 2014 because his sister was having a lot of trouble in her divorce and the custody hearings that went along with that divorce. Now, her name is Wendy Adelson, and she and Dan Markell, that's her ex-husband, he's also the murder victim here, they had two kids together, and they lived in Tallahassee. Uh, Dan, murder victim husband, he was teaching law at Florida State University, and they were married for six years, until Dan came home one day and found a stack of divorce papers in place of his wife and sons. The split was official back in 2012. But the fight over who was going to raise those boys and where the boys were going to be raised, that was just getting started. Because Wendy wanted to take them all the way to Miami to be closer to her family. And Miami is 400 miles south of Tallahassee. Uh, Dan, he wanted those boys to stay put in Tallahassee. And finally, a judge agreed with Dan. And allegedly, that decision sealed Dan's fate. Because on July 18th of 2014, while Dan was still sitting in his car, in his own garage, he was murdered by two South Florida hitmen. They were hired guns, and they shot him twice in the head. And I have their names. Sigfredo Garcia and Luis Rivera. And we know that because they along with another woman named Catherine McBanua, uh, they all have been convicted. And who is Catherine McBanua? Well, that's where things get interesting. Uh, You know the guy we're talking about on the stand today, the dentist? It's his then-girlfriend. It's Charlie Adelson's then-girlfriend. And Catherine also happened to be sleeping with one of the hitmen, Sigfredo Garcia. Which brings me back to Charlie Adelson and his story on the witness stand today because he's finally standing trial on charges. He was part of this whole first-degree murder and solicitation and conspiracy. Uh, Prosecution actually rested yesterday, so today he got his shot under oath to get up on the witness stand, and he told the jury that the state of Florida had the whole thing wrong, that he is not the bad guy here, that he is, in fact, the victim. That he is the victim. I'm going to give you a second to let that set in. Ready? Okay, so the dentist said that those bad men who killed his brother-in-law, his little sister's ex, those guys just were, I don't know, inspired. They took it upon themselves to do him this favor after their mutual girlfriend, the girl they both were sleeping with, blabbed about his family problems. What nice guys. (laughs) And there was more to his story, too. Um, Adelson said that those killers, uh, who did him a favor by rubbing out his sister's ex, they then turned around and flipped the script and then demanded that the dentist pay them for the favor they did him uh, that wasn't even asked for. And they asked for kind of a weird sum, too. Uh, We'd like a third of a million dollars, please. (laughs) Who demands a third of a million? (laughs) Uh, They also said they were going to kill him if he didn't pay up. So have a look.
2: She said, listen, this is all my fault, but I had no idea anything was going to happen, but this is totally my fault. I spoke in too much detail about your family's personal problems, about your sister, Dan Markell, and the million-dollar offer. She started telling me, like, I'm so sorry, this is this is all my fault, but I didn't know any of this was going to happen. And I'm like, Katie, I'm, I'm not going to be part of this shit. Like, I'm not going to be part of paying for a murder. This is insane. And, she, and she's like, look... If you don't pay in 48 hours, they will kill you. And I said, Katie, I feel like I'm getting extorted now.
0: Um, Adelson says he gave the girlfriend, Katie, $138,000 and he swore to make good on the rest of the money. And whether or not any of that stuff ever actually happened, the prosecutors say it didn't. And we know for a fact, um, weirdly, that a shakedown did actually end up happening later. I mean, it just keeps getting weirder, right? Uh, Because this shakedown that happened later was actually the FBI. They were behind it because they were desperate to get some evidence to try to nail the guy they believed orchestrated this whole ugly murder for hire. And an undercover agent posed as a gang member, a gang member who had caught wind in jail about this whole murder plot and wanted to make some money for himself. Through extortion. Not just from Charlie, but he went further aflung. He went to Charlie's little sister, Wendy, and then went to Charlie and Wendy's parents. And you'd better believe all those phones were tapped, the family's conversations recorded, and the tapes played back in court this week and last week, which is why it is critical to bring in Gigi McKelvey, the host of the Pretty Lies and Alibis podcast, because I was actually kind of struggling with all the twists and turns on this one, Gigi, and I know that you, nothing, you just never, never miss a beat. You never miss a beat. I am just trying to figure out if the jury was buying all of this business from the stand. What do you make of it?
4: I mean, if I'm a juror sitting here listening to this, I think it's a lot of hogwash. I think that his testimony is a little bit self-absorbed. And he has an excuse for everything. And that just doesn't fly with juries. They're smarter than that. We grew up watching forensic files. It's a classic case of hiring a hitman. Oops, she got caught. And it's everybody's fault but yours. The other thing that I noticed when he was testifying is sometimes when when they asked him, did you pay to have your brother-in-law murdered? He said, absolutely no. That's very contradicting. Absolutely or no. Which one is it? I don't think this jury is going to buy this for a second.
0: Yeah, it sounded pretty far-flung to me. But then there was other, this other moment. I don't know if it's going to resonate with the jury or not, but he had to come clean on why he made a very bad joke about hiring a hitman before prosecutors say he actually hired a hitman. Here's, here's how it played in court. Take a look.
2: When I gave her the TV, set said a divorce present. I, stupid is the stupidest thing I ever said in my life. And I said, you know, I was going to get you a hitman, but the, the, the TV set was a lot cheaper. So I went with the TV set instead. And I, I said it as a complete joke and it was stupid, but I do that a lot.
0: Note to self, ask for divorce present. Um, OK, that moment.
4: How did that go over with the jury? Look, I mean, we're talking about a loving dead father of two young boys And this is not a joke. And he may have that kind of sense of humor, but it's going to fall flat with those jurors. All they're going to see is what they've seen as far as crime scene photos, everything they've heard from the witnesses who are already serving life in prison. It's not a funny joke. And I just don't think it's, it's convincible to anybody with half a brain sitting on that jury at all.
0: And there's the other weird twist in all of this is this whole witness named Katie McBanawa, uh, and follow the bouncing ball here but but you know the dentist on the stand uh was was having a relationship with Katie and then later you know Katie's having a relationship with one of the uh hitmen and she's the tie that binds and she took the stand and kind of gave up all the goods didn't she say like He asked me in 2013 if I knew of anyone who could harm someone, and and she said yes. It kind of sounds like she was just (laughs) like, it's right here. It's all here. I'm already guilty, so I'll just tell you how it happened. How did that go over?
4: You know, I think one thing is initially she wasn't seen as very credible, but to me, if I'm on that jury, when they talk about the fact that she could have taken a deal way back in the day and served no jail time if she flipped on Charlie and also... The other man that she was sleeping with, who, by the way, is the father of her children, she said in giving up Charlie, she also would have had to have given up the father of her kids. I think that that might speak to the jury that she is credible because now she's life in prison. And the reason is she did not want her children's father to go to prison. They're both in there now, so no good to the kids. But I I think that they're going to buy her story and see her as more credible than Charlie because at this point, what does she have to lose? In admitting that on the stand, changing her testimony from her trial, her appeal process now is pretty much shot. So I think that gives her a lot of credibility where maybe there wasn't some before.
0: I get so frustrated when there are two parents involved and one uh, is accused of murder because the kids end up with no one uh, when they're guilty. Exactly. Um, And we'll watch for that. So you'll have to come back when we get a verdict on it. Thank you,
4: Gigi. Thank you, Ashley
0: always good to have Gigi McKelvey all right so still to come they are the very last people the very last people that we ever expect to see in trouble I'm talking about your local your state even your federal judges but friends oh they are human and they are flawed and sometimes law and order bites them in the ass bad judges thankfully there are few they are few and far between but the ones that do fall uh they fall hard and we've got the rogues gallery in their robes next Kind of feels a bit meta uh, to see a judge standing before a judge being judged for his own alleged crimes. But that is where we are this week. Uh, Judge Jeffrey Ferguson, he is of the uh, Orange County, California Superior Court. Uh, Instead of sitting on the bench, he was sitting at the defendant's table for a preliminary hearing on Monday. Technically, he is still a judge. Weird. uh, But he is also a murder suspect for this process. Uh, He's charged with shooting his wife to death during an argument back in August. He's pleaded not guilty, he said it was an accident, but according to the court records, um, after he killed his wife, Cheryl, Judge Jeffrey Ferguson texted his staff telling him, I just shot my wife, I won't be in tomorrow. It's like a sick day, I don't know, or PTO or something, that's just nuts, right? He ended up actually getting out on a million dollars bail, and his case and his trial are still pending. But I have to say, it is always a shock to see judges running afoul of the law. They're judges. They're literally the embodiment of law and order. And they have the last word on what is right and wrong. And they never do anything bad themselves, right? Turns out they do. It should be obvious why judges are held to the highest standards of conduct. But if it isn't, consider these timeless words that you won't find in any law book.
3: With great power comes great responsibility.
0: Words to live by in spandex, swinging from a web, or in a black robe and swinging a gavel. And so, while the vast majority of the nation's roughly 1,700 federal judges and 30,000 state and local judges wield their great power being fair and responsible, some of them don't.
4: You know, if you know, if I had a right,
2: I would throw it at you right now. You know, this stop is a- pissing me off. Just sit down. I'll take care of it. I yeah. don't need your help. No, sit you I'm the public defender. I have a right to be here, and I have a right to stand here. I said, in sit down. Signs. If you want to fight, let's go out back and I'll just beat your
0: That was, and emphasis on was, Judge John Murphy of Brevard County, Florida. And though he was greeted with applause when he came back into the courtroom, minus the public defender, the state Supreme Court would later call his behavior a national spectacle and kick him off the bench. That almost never happens. A years-long investigation by Reuters found that nine out of ten judges who wind up in front of the disciplinary boards nationwide end up keeping their jobs. Case in point, the Texas judge who burst into a jury room in a sex trafficking case and told the jurors that God said the defendant was innocent. The Honorable Jack Robeson was given a public warning by a state commission and Judge Robeson was sent back to work. Donald Thompson retired on his own terms from the Creek County Courts in Oklahoma. But then in a truly rare event, he came back as a defendant. Judge Thompson was charged with felony indecent exposure for having amused himself while on the bench with a penis pump during trials, even murder trials. He was convicted, and he spent 20 months in prison. The absolute quickest way for a judge to become an ex-judge may be to piss off the other judges, especially the chief judge. Elizabeth Halverson was a district judge in Las Vegas for not even eight months sworn in December 2006 and suspended July 2007. The state of Nevada spent twice that long, 16 months, getting her fired outright. Halverson never fit in, quite literally. At more than 400 pounds, she relied on a motorized scooter to get around, and it would not fit through the judge's door at the courthouse. So she used the public entrance in the front. She had an extra wide chair that was set up so that she could be seated on the bench. And she used oxygen tubes in her nose to breathe while on the bench. And none of that constituted misconduct in any sense of the word. And she was quick to point that out. I went campaigning just as I am. I never hid it. I never told anybody, hey, you know what? I'm this beautiful size eight woman who's perfect. But it was the other stuff that rubbed Halverson's co-workers the wrong way. Like asking a bailiff to rub her feet, to rub her back, and to make her lunch. Cursing at staff members. Falling asleep during trials. Talking to jurors outside the presence of lawyers. None of that stuff is okay. All of it was alleged by Halverson's staffers It didn't help that she had never tried a single case in her entire life. She'd gotten into judging out of spite by running against the husband of the chief judge who had sacked her when she was a clerk. That was for family court, and Halverson lost. But she ran again for district court, and this time Halverson won. Though by May of that year... She was barred from hearing any criminal cases. And by midsummer, she was then barred from the courthouse entirely. Her list of offenses then included hiring personal bodyguards whom she allowed to bypass the courthouse security.
3: We can't tolerate people bypassing security, no matter who does it. That cannot be tolerated. It puts you at risk and me at risk, everyone. We cannot tolerate that.
0: Halverson claimed... She needed the protection from her own colleagues.
4: No, I don't think it's fair when people are breaking in without warrants into your chambers and trying to um, assault you.
0: Nobody broke into anybody's chambers and nobody was assaulted, though Halverson did call 911 on one of the court clerks. The following August, she was the star attraction at the hottest ticket in Sin City. A week-long hearing of the Nevada Commission on Judicial Discipline. It was held at the Las Vegas Convention Center. A Spanish-language network dubbed her Jurista Gigante, the Giant Judge. She was facing 14 counts of wrongdoing and just as many witnesses against her, including, yep, that former bailiff of
4: hers.
3: Case can't stand what she did to me. And my question is, why? What does this say for America? What does this say about all of you?
0: But before the panel could hand down its verdict on expulsion, Halverson suffered a far worse and far more shocking indignity. What's going on there? Halverson's long-suffering husband, Ed, a husband who'd spent the past decade at Halverson's beck and call and whom she abused and belittled in return, a husband she once forced to testify under oath about doing the chores that she'd assigned to him. Well, that man decided one night to hit his wife in the head with a frying pan over and over again.
4: Are you going to help me?
0: Because I'm bleeding
2: a rock from, from
0: my head oh. Oh. I have a problem with my eye I'm bleeding so bad I can't see Ed Halverson went to jail and then went to prison Elizabeth Halverson survived that attack but just barely some folks thought that the attack might actually win her some sympathy and possibly even save her job but that was never going to happen the commission delivered a scorching 28 page decision, lambasting what it called Halverson's quote unrepentant attitude, her lack of professional expertise, her disrespectful demeanor, and almost total inability to operate collegially, end quote. It called her time on the bench, quote, mercifully short, end quote, and it decreed that she would never work as a judge in Nevada again. She had already filed for re-election and after Ed Halverson pleaded no contest to battery, she filed for divorce. Six years later, and now using her maiden name, Elizabeth Lamakia, the judge died at 56 years old, apparently of natural causes. Her husband, Ed, spent five years in the state pen and in 2019, he himself was found dead in Reno. A registered nurse from Utah was charged with his murder. But that is a whole other story. Coming up, they raised a school shooter together. And then they went on the run together when the cops came calling. But can't nothing tear up a marriage quite like prison time? Just ask... Jennifer and James Crumbly, the parents of Ethan Crumbly, a 15-year-old who killed four classmates in Michigan. It turns out they may not be such a unified front anymore. We'll tell you who's zooming Who next. It is probably fair to say that, you know, uh, your kid did a terrible thing when you yourself end up running from the police, like the parents of Ethan Crumbly. They made a break for it after their 15-year-old shot dead four students at his Michigan high school. Uh, Their names are Jennifer and James Crumbly, and they were cited, actually, for failing to secure their guns, not responding to their son's disturbing behaviors, and then ignoring his mental health as well. And they were supposed to turn themselves in because of that, but they did not. Instead, they took off, and police, U.S. Marshals, and the FBI spent hours and hours tracking them, ultimately to the basement of an art studio in Detroit, where they were hiding out. The authorities threw in four additional counts against these uh, two, uh, involuntary manslaughter for the terror that their boy caused to hundreds of students. And now we are learning Uh, that all of this can be very hard on a loving relationship, and the Crumblies might now actually be crumbling. Apparently, Jennifer Crumbly has been telling other inmates that she's housed with that all of this, all of the death and the devastation, is the fault of her husband, James. According to the prosecutor, she's blaming James for buying their underage son the gun that he used in the massacre and then also uh, blaming him for ignoring Ethan's mental health. Allegedly, Mom is accusing Dad of taking no responsibility for the son's behavior. Even after a highly disturbing phone call from the school the day before the shooting, the defense says that prosecutors are simply trying to make the Crumblies appear, quote, not united. I don't know what that is, though. Is that an advantage or not? Their trial is 11 weeks away. Who knows if when they are in court together they will be mouthing the words, I love you. Across the courtroom. I say that because that is exactly what they did at an earlier hearing until the judge told them to stop doing that. And of course, we will be covering that case, so watch this space. Uh, Coming up, you know when a criminal leaves behind telltale evidence at a scene? Sometimes it's like fingerprints, sometimes it's DNA, sometimes it's a hair. Sometimes it's a piece of fabric. And sometimes the thing that they leave behind um, basically foils what could have been a perfectly good crime. Unsolvable, right? But sometimes they are so inexplicably stupid. And it makes catching them so exquisitely easy. Coming up next, I'm going to give you three guesses at what this fella left behind at the scene of a robbery. And here's a hint. It involves some of his past alleged crimes that were real serious. Yeah, does that leave you a scratch in your head? Well, you just got to wait a couple minutes. Tell you what it was. Police officers in Memphis, Tennessee don't always get their man, but sometimes the crooks make it real easy on them. Uh, Take, for instance, uh, uh, Marissa. This is Marissa Walls. His current address is the Memphis jail because police say he broke into someone's house a couple weeks ago, stole some electronics and got away. But Mr. Walls broke the number one rule of burglaring. He left a calling card. Quite literally, he left his name and address behind. Police say he actually dropped his own arrest warrant at the scene of the crime. And it was an arrest warrant for a whole other set of crimes, including attempted murder. So talk about a roadmap, map. Police went straight to his house and cuffed him, and he's now in jail on a $55,000 bond. The lesson here, of course, thank God for the dum-dums. Uh, so tomorrow night we have an exclusive interview for you, our Brian Enton.